0: Welcome to the Healthful Woman podcast. Today is Monday, May 4th, 2020. I am really excited for the podcast this week because both are with Dr. Sam Bender. Sam is one of my partners at MFM Associates and is one of the most sought out OBGYNs in the region. There is literally a line out the door for patients to see Sam, and for good reason. Sam is extremely smart, has a ton of experience, is an excellent surgeon, and is one of the calmest doctors you will ever meet. More importantly, Sam is also a huge Chicago Cubs fan. In today's podcast, Go Cubs Go, Sam and I talk about his road to OBGYN, how medicine has changed over the course of his career, and of course, Cubs baseball. On Thursday, we talk about cesarean section rates. This is one of the more misunderstood statistics out there, and we try to make some sense of it, why it has increased over time, and suggestions for how to think about it. I think you'll find it very interesting. Thank you so much for listening to a Woman. We've dropped 16 podcasts in our first month, and the response has been very positive. I'm humbled that anyone out there is interested in what my guests and I have to say, and I'm truly motivated to put out interesting and relevant content. As of now, our plan moving forward is to continue to drop at least one podcast every Monday and every Thursday. We have a lot of interesting topics planned, and if you have any suggestions, definitely send them in. Have a great day, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Today, we're talking with Dr. Samuel Bender. Sam, welcome to Healthful Woman. Hey, thanks. Is this your first podcast experience? First time ever. Welcome to the show. So, Sam, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Oh, I'm kind of from a lot of places. My parents were college
1: professors and so we grew up on different campuses. I was born when they were teaching at California, Berkeley, my sister when they were at Northwestern and my brother at Notre Dame.
0: And since he was the youngest, we turned up in South Bend, Indiana for most of my childhood. Sam and I have that in common. We're both Midwesterners. I was in Chicago. He was in Indiana. And therefore, we're both big Cubs fans, which is both a blessing and a curse for us. Now a blessing. Most of my childhood, more of the curse. It's been a shared experience. And Sam is currently one of the partners and senior, that's in quotes, physicians at maternity. Field Medicine Associates. And when did you start there? We started this practice 15 years ago, Andre Rebarber, Dan Saltzman,
1: and myself left NYU from a practice that was part of the university program, joined forces with Mike Silverstein, and formed Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates with Mount Sinai Hospital as our delivering site. Shortly after that, undoubtedly
0: you remember, you joined us, Nadie. And what was that like moving from one place to another in terms of like logistically and culturally? And you'd been in one place pretty much your whole career until that point. Yeah, it was terrifying.
1: When you're in one place, even if that place has a fair amount of dysfunction, you learn you learn how to get things done. When you go to a new place, it's rediscovering everything again. You become the new the new guys on the block. Everything that you do that isn't exactly the way that they do it in the new place, stands out, and you find yourself sort of the center of attention for a while, the new shiny penny. You trained at NYU, yes? I did. I did my residency at NYU, stayed and joined a private practice. I was one of two for the next seven years. After that, left that model to go into a more traditional model as a group practice that was with Andre Rebarber in the faculty group practice. And three years into that model, we decided that we could do this in a more interesting, exciting and efficient way if we turned it back into a private practice. At that time, Mount Sinai was an easy spot for landing because they had a real need for the high-risk OB division type patients that we were taking care of.
0: And one of the interesting things that I'm not sure everyone realizes is it was somewhat unique at that time to have a practice that combined both OBGYNs and maternal fetal medicine specialists into one practice. Usually they were separate. You had your quote-unquote high-risk group With maternal fetal medicine doctors, and yet your quote unquote low risk group with OBGYNs, but What you guys started was a combination of the two.
1: What we thought we wanted to do was provide a single spot for patients to go where they could get whatever care they required, whether it was obstetric care, the high-risk consultation, ultrasound diagnoses, prenatal genetics, whatever it was going to be in a single setting. And it was counter to what MFMs were, were becoming at that time. There was a real movement 15, 20 years ago for the MFMs to do primarily ultrasound consultation and provide an ancillary service for delivering doctors in in other practices. And we kept everything in house with a model that we created.
0: Right, because most maternal fetal medicine is a subspecialty of obstetrics and gynecology, meaning when you train after medical school, you do a residency in obstetrics and gynecology, which trains you to do deliveries, prenatal care, gynecologic surgery, and then a subset of those people will do extra training in maternal fetal medicine, sometimes known as high-risk OB. And as you said, early on in the specialty, most, if not all of those specialists still did prenatal care and deliveries and were very active on the labor floor. And then around that time, that began to change. And so it was a little bit unusual for the maternal field medicine doctors to be doing prenatal care and deliveries. There has been a resurgence of that recently with a push by the national societies to get more MFMs involved in deliveries. But what's unique about the practice, and it's one of the reasons that I actually chose to join, is that it really did, as you say, allow women to come there for their entire lives. They could get their general gynecologic care. They could also get prenatal care if they had high-risk issues with an ultrasound. We really kept it in one place, which personalizes a lot of the medical care, which is not always a possibility in certain practices. Oh, absolutely true. Even
1: from my early experiences in a lower risk practice, there was a disconnect when you had a patient with a problem and you needed to have a consultation or a specialized scan or additional genetic testing. There was always disconnect where there was time lost, the efficiency was poor, and the communication was difficult. You had to essentially send a patient for a study one day, bring them back the following week, find their paper chart, if it existed at all, and make certain that you had all their records together to be able to figure out what the next step was. And that, not infrequently, would entail actually being scheduled in the future for an additional procedure with additional delays. And so there was a super nice thing about having everything together in both in terms of being able to guide somebody's care, make sure things didn't fall through the crack. Occasionally, weeks, if not a month of delays were removed from the system. So it was fantastic. The early MFMs that I trained with were mostly in a solo practice model and did a little bit of everything, perhaps nothing at an elite level, but everything at some level. And as the field of maternal fetal medicine grew and really got quite specialized, especially in terms of ultrasound diagnoses and ultrasound-related procedures, there was a splintering where you had a group of people that were delivering and a group of people that were making the plans. And the unique thing about our practice is that we've incorporated both of these things and are able to really
0: do everything at what I'd like to believe to be an elite level. And when your group moved from NYU up to Mount Sinai, one of the maybe surprising features was that almost all of the patients followed, that 90% or so of all the patients who were in your practice at NYU chose to move and come up with you to to Mount Sinai. And I'm wondering if that's part of the reason. In retrospect, I think that probably
1: is. There was obviously a connection when you're in a practice model, Whereas a patient, you like to stay with the doctors that, that you know. But I think part of it was also the service that we were providing, that everything was going to be together for them. But you're absolutely correct. When we first started this practice, we had a lot of models by a lot of very smart business-related people that told us that we wouldn't you know, lose our homes, which we had to put up as collateral to build this practice, if somewhere in the vicinity of about half the patients, you know, could come with us, or if a little bit less than that, if we recruited additional patients to sort of achieve that volume. And it was a bit of a surprise that by opening our doors and announcing that all of the different features of obstetrics, gynecology, ultrasound, and what we call high-risk obstetrics, were gonna be in a single entity that it was an extraordinarily attractive model. And we hit the ground running, as they say. And you have patients currently who probably you delivered when they were babies. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've gotten to that age where that happens. I like to blame the patients for their incredible fertility and and desire to have children young, but I now have gone to the next generation of some of my patients. In fact, just last week, I was doing a procedure on a patient who's presently pregnant with her second child. And her mother was uh, chatting with me after the procedure and, and said, you don't remember, but you delivered my other daughter 24 years ago today and I told her that she must be mistaken, that that I was an infant 24 years ago and couldn't possibly have done that. But here we are. How did you find your way into medicine in the first place? A little bit frontwards, a little bit backwards. As a high school senior, I was fairly certain that I wanted to go into medicine and actually applied to and was admitted to an accelerated program where you could get a bachelor's degree and an MD at the same time and um, had a panic attack when they showed me that you know my entire schedule you know for the next six years and when you're 18 and 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 somebody says this is you know what you're doing the next six years it seemed a little daunting so i chose a slower path at that moment went to a liberal arts school with no requirements so that i could be a science major and a liberal arts major and actually thought i was going to go back into medicine right after that by the end of college I wasn't so sure I wanted to go to medicine right away, and uh, my father convinced me that I had taken all the classes. I probably should just take the exam, and I did, and he said, well, you should probably just apply to your state school, so I did, and then when I got in, my state school in Indiana said that I could defer for a year, and so I said, I'll do that. Anything to delay, and my one year off oddly turned into seven years off. And I turned up, and this was early 80s, and the newest, uh, coolest thing in science and medicine, at least in my opinion, was in vitro fertilization. The first IVF baby was born, I think, in 78 in, in England, and this is 1982. And I was recruited to work in a, in a lab for what I thought was my one year off, and it was kind of fun, and it uh, was kind of liberating not to be in school for a bit. You know, long story, a little bit shorter, I turned up running the lab, and staying for seven years and living in DC, which was quite the experience. At that point, I found out that you actually have to take the MCAT again, the exam for medical school, if you have that many years gap. And that was rude awakening, having to learn chemistry once more, but applied to medical school and then found that I had done a very silly thing, which was I had found myself living without a state school anymore. And Indiana announced that after seven years absence, that I didn't count anymore. And Washington, D.C. didn't have any state schools. And and at the time, I was uh, dating uh, now my wife, who was living in New York City. So combining all my decisions at one moment, I quit my job, moved to New York, started medical school, and went to the state school in New York because they said that if I paid taxes once in New York, that I would be a state resident. So I got my good deal, you know, to go to uh, a state university in New York in Brooklyn and got to experience Kings County Hospital. You know, a little kid from South Bend, Indiana, you know, uh, now at at Kings County. From there, it was an easy transition from Kings County. I thought at the end of medical school, what I would do, go into OBGYN and probably go back into infertility after doing a reproductive endocrinology and fertility fellowship. Right,
0: because you'd worked in the lab for seven years already. Exactly,
1: yeah, I thought it was very cool that I could use my background in some prenatal genetics, I could use my background having been a lab person in IVF, and it would all sort of come together if I went into infertility. And then came residency, and residency at NYU and at Bellevue was, fantastic, but you know, also uh, quite the experience. Bellevue is an amazing hospital. We used to say at Bellevue, if you don't see it at Bellevue, it probably doesn't exist. And in the course of my residency, what I learned is I really liked obstetrics and high risk obstetrics. And I actually didn't think that endocrinology was all that exciting. And it refocused me to go into obstetrics and gynecology. The surgical side of infertility was being covered by procedures that I would do in gynecology. And I got to keep the obstetrics, which I found exhilarating and also really connecting on a very personal level with patients. If you follow a patient for prenatal care and you've known them for a minimum six months and you've shared the experience of their labor and delivery with them, it's just a very, very different connection that I just don't think you get in any other facet of medicine.
0: And so right now you still do a lot of deliveries and prenatal care, obviously. And you also do gynecologic care as an outpatient, and you still operate. So you're still doing your full, everything you train for, basically. Yep. I, I, got to, I got to keep everything
1: I like. On my perfect week, I'll have two days covering labor and delivery, a day in the operating room, and two days in the office. I don't think I was made to be any place five you know, days, days a week. And so this, this suits me perfectly. I still manage to deliver, I think, more babies than most most everybody else in the practice. I've never taken much more call than anyone else, but I seem to be a magnet for when patients actually go into labor. Most years, I deliver somewhere between a quarter and a third of the babies in this practice.
0: And that's been a long time. We had Dr. Silverstein on before, and he was discussing the number of deliveries we've done, and it's, you know, many thousands Uh, over the years. That's a lot of people. Michael is fantastic at keeping track of things. He, He could probably tell you better
1: than I, how many babies I've delivered at least in the last 15 years.
0: Since you've been in the practice and in the field for a while, what is the biggest change you've seen from when you were training maybe until today in terms of the field of obstetrics and gynecology or maternal fetal medicine? Huge, huge changes. You know, many of them, many of them are outstanding and some of them, you know, can be a
1: little frustrating. At the beginning of my training, the number of hours that, you know, the, that we put in were extraordinary, but with it came a fantastic amount of training. Now, I think things have become way more sane, especially for training doctors and, and uh, you know, the younger people in our field where we protect their time much, much better than ever before. But with that came a call some of the procedures that were routine in general OBGYN are now things that really you only learn if you do a subspecialty, if you do a fellowship. It wasn't uncommon in my residency for us to do advanced oncology surgery, cancer surgery, as well as maternal fetal medicine procedures, as well as ultrasound guided procedures, you know, as well as classic obstetric procedures, including you know forcep deliveries and things. And now everything has become far narrower the scope of practice that most physicians will have the amount of things that that we're capable of doing is extraordinary the amount of change that's occurred both in ultrasound and ultrasound diagnosis as well as the incredible changes that have happened in genetics have all happened really in the last couple decades in terms of what's now available in clinical medicine to help us take care of our patients
0: i trained in between you and currently and i was sort of at the the breaking point From when it used to be the crazy long hours to what it is now, at least in terms of training, and it's it's difficult. It's a difficult solution for what to do. On the one hand, there's so much the doctors need to know. There's so much knowledge you need to have, and there's so many procedures you need to learn how to do and how to do them well. And you need to do these things and to train. But on the other hand, as everyone knows, there is a breaking point. If you work past a certain number of hours, either you're competency falls off because you're too tired, you're fatigued, you can't think straight and you can't do procedures. And also just general wellness. People get, they just get burnt out or they have a very difficult time with their home life because they're never around or whatever it is. And it's, no one really has been able to figure out what is exactly the perfect way to solve those two seemingly opposite poles between getting more training, yet staying well and healthy and you know sane as a physician i think it's even more extreme in, in obstetrics and
1: gynecology in other fields it's not entirely unreasonable for your answering machine you know, for example to say if this is an emergency hang up the phone and call 911 yeah you know, that there are certain hours that in other disciplines you simply aren't available or don't need to be a, you know, available in obstetrics and gynecology especially obstetrics we need to have a model in which we are available 24 hours a day 7 days a week which is unique perhaps the emergency room. You know, it's it's a similar model. And the the way that hours and duties have been controlled in places like the emergency room is that everything became shift work. And in obstetrics, it's still difficult to create a model like that because the patients don't want it. You want to know and have some relationship with your doctor. The doctors don't want it. They want to maintain something akin to the private practice model and solo practitioner model that some of us had earlier, but also was very appealing that you you knew your patients, that you saw them prenatally, that you followed up with them in the hospital when they were having labor and deliveries, and that they continued to follow with you afterwards as your primary care patients. And so OBGYN is sort of unique in the way that we're primary care, we're surgery, we're obstetrics, and way more so than any other field has to do.
0: Right. And I think the key in what we've tried to do in our own practice and other practices do this is try to balance that. On the one hand, it's great to have one doctor for every woman, but it's unrealistic because no one can truly be available and excellent 24-7. It's just not physically possible to do that. On the other hand, if you start adding other doctors to the mix, there's always the potential for things to get missed from one doctor to the next in terms of handing off and signing off. You know, If someone's in labor and then a new doctor comes in, there's always that potential. And so what we've tried to do in our practice is really switch that model from one doctor, one woman, to a true group model, that when someone comes to our practice, they're seeing all of the doctors and all of us consider the patients ours. And so we communicate with each other about the patients. If something complicated comes up, we talk to each other as the doctors. And if you can sort of balance that having enough doctors that everyone is kept safe and that the the care is not being rendered by someone who's too tired or has been working for three straight days or has somewhere they have to be and they're rushed and therefore they're not making great decisions, but balancing adding more doctors to not diluting the type of care you're getting that's always been a goal And it's something that we work on in medicine in general. People are trying to figure this out, how to do that. Oh, you're absolutely correct.
1: It's easy to sit and sort of say, this is how I would have managed it. What's far more productive is to be proactive, is to create systems in which everyone has a fundamental knowledge of essentially all the patients in the practice, that it's in an available space. And things like the electronic medical record have been a godsend to allow us to be able to do these things. But even more than this is to have practice models in which you have a level of confidence conversation to determine how you want to manage these things and consensus so that when decisions are being made, they're being adequately discussed with patients, the lines of communication are real, and that the plans are accepted and followed by not just the on-call doctor of that moment, but the person that may be following up afterwards, that the plans are clear, that the reasoning is sound and reviewed, and that the patients are involved and able to participate in helping decide what care they want, how they want it provided, as much as we possibly
0: can. Totally agree. Well, if you want to see Dr. Bender, you can find him at Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates, either sitting in his chair, seeing patients, drinking coffee, having a conversation, or potentially on the labor floor, or even in the operating room, or maybe at uh, Wrigley Field catching a Cubs game. Are you going to spring training this year? I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I I, I've, I made a
1: plan with my with my younger brother years and years ago that we would try to catch a Cubs game every single year at a moment in time when the Cubs were still relevant, which was <laughs> it, it was very difficult in the 70s and the 80s, and so we picked spring training, knowing that we were zero and zero, not not behind any other team in all of baseball at that moment. And and it turned out being such fun that that part of Arizona is actually a cool place to go.
0: And, yeah, you know, when the weather's still cold in New York, that it became an annual thing. And so we try very hard to get there. Awesome. All right, well, let's play two. Sam, thanks for coming on. It's been great. And uh, we will see you around the office. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www. Dot healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day.